0: Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages, connected to a worldwide network of activist correspondents, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement, and I am your host, Steve D'Angelo. Thanks very much for your questions and comments. Please keep them coming in. Also, please consider going to my website, stevedangelo.com and leaving us your email address. That way, if any of the platforms we're on tries to censor or even disappear radio-free cannabis, we can all find our way back to each other. I'd like to thank Harborside, Liberty Clothing, and HomegrownCannabis.com for their kind support of this show, and to Kalafari for sending me this beautiful new silk bandana. I've been enjoying its softness and the warmth around my neck It's beginning to get cold and wintry here in Oakland, and I love the contrast that it brings to the blue colors that I usually wear. So please be sure to check out the offerings of all of these companies, and remember, in this holiday season, to support the companies that support our community. The first week of December 2020 may go down in history as the week that saw the most progress ever on cannabis reform in the entire history of our movement. Three- major steps were taken. First, the United Nations removed cannabis from the UN's most restrictive schedule, Schedule IV, and adopted World Health Organization guidelines for medical cannabis. Then, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Moore Act, which will entirely remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act once it becomes law. And then, immediately following the House's passage of the Moore Act, the National Basketball Association announced it will no longer urine test players for cannabis. These positive steps come on the heels of a November 19th ruling by the European Court of Justice that CBD cannot be considered a narcotic and that all EU countries must allow it to be sold and consumed. And another major piece of good news, our brother Richard DeLisi, the longest serving nonviolent prisoner in the united states was released from a private prison in the state of florida where he had served 32 years of a 90 year sentence for conspiracy to distribute cannabis richard was originally sentenced as part of a coordinated reign of terror against the cannabis community it was orchestrated by state and federal law enforcement agencies in the late 1980s a campaign that made cannabis arrest the largest category of drug arrest in the 1990s. It makes me feel really good to see that our movement has finally grown strong enough and smart enough to return to the field of battle and retrieve our fallen soldiers, all the good and courageous souls who carried the plant of enlightenment through the dark years of Prohibition. Welcome home, Richard. May all your days moving forward be full of joy and love. I'm also really happy to report on a new study conducted by my old friend, Dr. Philippe Lucas, Ph.D., one of the OG pioneers of legal cannabis in Canada, and now Vice President of Patient Research and Access for Tilray. Philippe's study, just published in the International Journal of Drug Policy, looked at the alcohol consumption rates of new medical cannabis patients. He found that 44% of the patients reported drinking less frequently, and 8% said they had given up alcohol completely. These results confirm the alcohol substitution effect that has already been seen in previous studies and official statistics, and provide another example of how cannabis reform benefits all of society, not just cannabis consumers. All of this good news has sent a wave of excitement and rejoicing through the entire cannabis community, from the tall towers of corporate cannabis to the grittiest street activists. But meanwhile, our brother Albert Teo remains imprisoned in Spain in the beginning weeks of a five-year sentence he received for his role in running IRAM, a highly regarded, trailblazing Barcelona Cannabis Association. His incarceration, mandated by the central government of Spain, appears to be part of a revived campaign to crush the vibrant Spanish Cannabis Association scene, estimated today at around 1,000 associations nationwide. Please consider signing the petition to Free Albert and writing him a letter during this holiday season. You can find links for both of these items in the description of this podcast and more on Albert's case in episode 24 of Radio Free Cannabis. Now, for a deeper look at some of last week's historic reform measures, we'll go to the always discerning, eagle-eyed Bill Weinberg reporting from New York City.
1: Thanks, Steve. At the annual Vienna meeting of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, the governing body of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime voted December 2nd to strike cannabis from schedule 4 of the 1961 single convention on narcotic drugs the global treaty regulating drug control policy the commission which includes 53 member states was weighing a series of recommendations from the world health organization on reclassifying cannabis and its derivatives those recommendations issued last year called for removing cannabis from schedule 4 where it was listed for 59 years, alongside dangerous and highly addictive opiates, such as heroin. With this move, the commission cleared the way for official recognition of the medicinal and therapeutic potential of cannabis by the United Nations. Among the 27 member states voting in favor of the move was, somewhat surprisingly, the United States. This is something of an historical irony as it was the US that crafted and pushed for the Single Convention Treaty. It was the brainchild of Harry Anslinger, longtime head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the architect of cannabis prohibition in the 1930s. The Single Convention was his effort to impose the US prohibitionist regime worldwide. European Union member states voted as a bloc in favor, joined by India, Mexico, Colombia. Nepal, and Morocco, all major illicit producers. Among the 25 voting against were Russia, China, Pakistan, Brazil, and Cuba, all authoritarian regimes of either the right or the left. The one abstention was Ukraine. Ecuador, voting to support the move, urged that cannabis production, sale and consumption be given, quote, a regulatory framework that guarantees good practices, quality, innovation, and research development. Voting against, Chile claimed that, quote, there is a direct relationship between the use of cannabis and increased chances of suffering from depression, cognitive deficit, anxiety, psychotic symptoms, among others. Also voting against, Japan asserted that the change, quote, Might give rise to negative health and social impacts, especially among youth. End quote. Don't light up a celebratory blunt just yet, however. It's important to take stock of what the commission did not do. Remove cannabis from Schedule One, the next strictest level of control. The World Health Organization had recommended that cannabis continue to be listed there, citing the supposed High rates of public health problems arising from cannabis use? And this is the more operative question where United States law is concerned. The U.S. Controlled Substances Act classifies cannabis along with its psychoactive component, THC, as a Schedule I substance. Despite the fact that THC's synthetic analog, dronabinol, has been placed by the Drug Enforcement Administration under the less restrictive Schedule Three. The US Supreme Court announced in October that it will not hear a case challenging the constitutionality of classifying cannabis as a schedule one controlled substance. So while the vote in Vienna has a great symbolic value, it is unlikely to have immediate practical effect, especially in the United States. The commission also rejected a proposal to exempt CBD preparations with less than 0.2% THC from international control. However, just days after the Vienna vote on December 4th, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to pass the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act or the MORE Act, which would in fact remove cannabis from Schedule 1 under federal law. The 228 to 164 vote to approve the bill was bipartisan and marked the first time that either chamber of Congress has ever embraced the legalization of cannabis. The bill would remove cannabis and THC from the Controlled Substances Act and instead a 5% tax on sales that would fund community and small business grant programs designed to assist those social sectors that have been most impacted by marijuana prohibition. Critically, it would also expunge prior convictions for cannabis possession. The Moore Act was introduced last year by Senator Kamala Harris, Democrat of California, legalization advocacy group Normal hailed it as, quote, arguably the most revolutionary and socially conscious federal marijuana reform bill introduced to date. However, the Moore Act is, for now, almost certainly facing doom in the Republican-controlled Senate, where GOP leaders are already dissing it as a distraction from the work of passing a pandemic relief package. So we'll have plenty to fight for in 2021. For Radio Free Cannabis, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Global Ganja Report.
0: Thank you, Bill. We're going to revisit the Moore Act a bit later in the show. But first, we'll hear from a new correspondent, Jean-Pierre Secaldi, founder and editor of LeCannabis.com, a leading French cannabis platform. Jean-Pierre is going to give us a wrap-up on the status of reform in France and a quick look at the European Court of Justice ruling on CBD. Welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, Jean-Pierre.
2: Thank you, Steve. Welcome everyone to this week's live report from France. It's been quite a surprise for the ones who believe that Emmanuel Macron young presidency would lead the country to modernity and reform when it comes to cannabis laws. Described by some like an authoritarian leader, The young president has plunged the country back in the darkest reefer madness ages and the war on drugs is waging again in France, harder than ever before. France is known to be one of the most prohibitionist states in Europe. It's still got some medieval-like laws that would punish you as much as positive presentation of cannabis with fines and jail time. France has no medical cannabis program, but politically looking into the experimentation of it. France has a zero tolerance with weed usage policy. Consuming cannabis is still considered a felony, despite a law reform where smokers should be simply fined. But the charges remain in the records, and the law will remember. Five millions of users are concerned by that tracking. France has recently moved to the principles of fining people when it comes to prohibit the use of cannabis. The successive governments have deeply failed in the waging war on drugs during fifty years, so the problem of cannabis usage in young population has inflated and is now out of control. Last week we have published a piece with LeCannabiste.com specifically about that problem. Prohibition is throwing out teenagers massively in the hands of the black market today. The numbers we have today are coming from the OFDT, it's France's central statistic organisation when it comes to observing usages and addictive behaviours. France is ranking last in what the scientists are calling problematic teenagers use, That would mean the rate of teenagers whose consumption went out of hands is involving psychological or educational issues. So we have like 10% of the teenagers experimenting problematic usage. We need to keep in mind that today, 45% of all the 17 years old in France are currently using cannabis on a weekly basis. What do you think, Steve? 43% of all the teenagers in the country, that could be a world record. Maybe you can tell us. I don't know. This means quite a lot.
0: I think you're right, Jean-Pierre. I can't ever recall hearing a higher rate of teenage cannabis use. I have mixed feelings on the subject myself. On the one hand, I've seen firsthand the damage that can come when teenagers engage with the underground market. Most dealers don't ask for identification, and they often introduce kids who come looking for cannabis to other truly dangerous drugs. I've seen some of the most sensitive souls from multiple generations follow this pathway to addiction, and it's heartbreaking. On the other hand, I think it's natural for teenagers to seek out cannabis and explore how they can use it. In an ideal world, the world we're trying to bring about, I think kids would usually learn what responsible cannabis use looks like through a natural process of modeling their parents' behavior, just like happens with alcohol or food or even exercise today.
2: Absolutely, Steve, but the most surprising if we compare it with Portugal, the nearby neighbor, which has completely decriminalized drug usage. Their own teenagers' consumption is simply half of France, has today with the hardest lows. Now, what's, aton- what's astonishing is that France is ranking at the bottom for a massive young usage level, something called the primo usage. That is, most of the countries in Europe have less than 20% of all 16 years old who have tried cannabis before reaching that age. France has more and that's a real problem. At least the OFDT, the statistic organization, is giving us another bad number. It's the rate of teenagers who declare having used cannabis at least once in the last month altogether. It's more than 50% in France. So this ranking goes down to 34th or 35th country in Europe on 35th. It's slightly better than Italy, which is another prohibitionist neighbor. The toughest prohibition laws means the harder the fall. France is just a perfect example of 15 years in prohibition, leading to social conflicts, but also armed and mighty traffickers. If we continue down this road, the fate of France could be comparable to the fate of Mexico at some point, a never-ending war. This week, the spotlight comes from the European Justice Court. It has given an answer about what we call here the mother of all trials. It's the Canavap case. Two entrepreneurs from the city of Marseille were arrested back in 2016, following the release of the very first CBD vape pen in France. Sébastien Beguéry and Antonin Cohen have seen their lives upside down after they were treated like drug dealers overnight by the French government. This is the punishment they had for pioneering in the CBD industry in the country at war with weed. The charges were heavy and the two businessmen from the city of uh, Marseille down the south of France actually won their trial, the charges were heavy against them and the two businessmen were facing jail time and heavy fines. But the highest justice court on the continent has given advantage to CBD in their decision. First, France will no longer oblige uh, the producer of CBD to harvest from stems and leaves, believe it or not, But this is black and white, what the French law says, even serving hemp purposes or high CBD strains, you can't process the flowers by the law. So second, and nonetheless, CBD cannot be considered a regulated substance because of a lack of toxicity. So as a conclusion, the European Justice Court delivers that message. CBD cannot be classified as a narcotic. France will no longer be able to prohibit any final product under the excuse that it contains some traces of THC. The hemp used to manufacture plant is regulated at 0.2%, but final products may now legally withhold traces of THC according to the EU law. This is a massive news that comes the free hundreds of CBD entrepreneurs who have been literally harassed by the police and the justice and treated hard like if there were drug dealers in France for selling CBD. This is it for the week. Thank you for following. Jean-Pierre Secaldi, over and out, speaking for a free cannabis radio from the reduction of lecannabis.com. Happy week.
0: See you soon. Thanks for that great report, Jean-Pierre. I think it highlights a recurring theme. Even with all the tremendous progress we've made, the cannabis freedom movement in many places still faces a deeply entrenched political establishment that continues to promote a discredited and unscientific prohibitionist ideology. It's true in France, it's true in Italy, and it's still true at the federal level in the United States, but the tide is turning. We are dismantling prohibition piece by piece almost everywhere it exists. In some places, the changes are slow and modest. In other places, they are rapid and radical. But day by day, it's getting harder to find any place on this planet where the cannabis tribe is not marching forward. Our next correspondent, Natalie Papillon, is the policy director of Last Prisoner Project. Natalie's already been an interview guest on this show in the old format. Now she's joining us as a correspondent in the new format, and she's going to give us more details on the passage of the Moore Act.
3: The Moore Act is unlikely to be enacted into law in the near term or really in the long term. Given the the Congress Congressional session will adjourn in early January and the Senate is Quite unlikely to take it up. The 116th Congress will not move the MORAC to be to the president's desk to be signed. That said, something that's symbolic, like the MORAC passage, doesn't mean it's worthless. I think this was a historic moment for the movement. It, in my personal opinion, feels like a sea change in terms of the liberalization of our federal cannabis laws. This will be the first time, or it was the first time. Any chamber of Congress had voted on a descheduling bill, which is monumental um, since forever. And what it signals to policymakers is that the American people not only want cannabis policy reform, not only do they want a federal descheduling, but finally their elected officials, their elected representatives, have caught up and started to enact the will of the people and and work to make it into the law. And with that momentum, um, we will continue to see on the local, state, and federal level more and more legalization and, you know, cannabis policy reforms come into fruition. I think policymakers oftentimes lag behind public opinion. You know, they are constantly thinking about their reelection prospects. And though there's been a ton of polling over the past few years that shows that this is a desire, it wasn't until last Friday when the Moore Act was voted on in the House that policymakers were willing to go on record and state their support or lack of support for this measure. And now that that is in the federal register, it'll be a lot easier for cannabis policy reformers to cite the historic passage of the Moore Act as rationale for continued liberalization
0: i think you make such an important point here the politicians have lagged far behind the people this has been true since the beginning of the cannabis reform movement um all of our early victories were voter initiatives where the people were voting directly on a law it was uh, really only last year that we started seeing legislative or maybe the year before that we started seeing legislative motion to reform cannabis laws and for me, the passage of the Moore Act in the House of Representatives is a really huge leap forward because of that, because it's, it's the first time that we've seen a vote by a national elected body in the United States that is catching up with where the people already are. And I think that the five initiatives that were on the ballot this general election cycle that all won um, really helped push that, that, that momentum forward. Um, Natalie, I know there were some uh, changes at the last minute to the Moor Act. Could you walk us through those changes?
3: Yes. So there were two categories of changes that were made public in the middle of last week. So there was a change to the taxation regulatory scheme introduced by the MORE Act. So they changed the tax policy. And while that's important to think about, I think the most Media attention was paid to changes around what many people are now calling the federal exclusionary provision of the Moore Act. And put simply, when the Moore Act went to the Rules Committee, there were amendments made that made it clear that in order to get a federal permit for any sort of cannabis related operation, that those with felonies related to cannabis use or distribution would Encounter a roadblock when they were applying for one of those licenses. And this obviously does not necessarily gel with the stated objective of the More Act, which is to repair the harms of the war on drugs, which is to make sure people who are disproportionately impacted by criminalization have access to the economic opportunities in the industry. And there is a lot in the MORA Act, you know, the community investment trust fund. Um, There's some language that speaks about social equity provisions. And so this felony exclusionary provision um, really came kind of out of left field for many activists who felt that the lawmakers who were pushing it forward were aligned with their desire for restorative justice. Not to make it too wonky, but technically this last minute amendment substantively wasn't was always in the MORE Act. So when the MORE Act was introduced in 2019, it basically had a subsection that said, anyone who would be applying for a cannabis industry operating permit would be governed by the same rules that apply to those uh, that want to access a federal tobacco manufacturing um, permit. And many activists, myself included, did not go back and look in sort of US code to find out what exactly that meant. And that was an oversight that will be corrected in the future. Turns out that on the federal level to access a tobacco manufacturing license, you are subject to the discretion of the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services. And they, if you have a felony related to some sort of tobacco related conviction, you are, not necessarily able to access that license. That's something that they can take under consideration. And so when the new version of the Moore Act came onto the House floor, it basically was the long form version of those tobacco related statutes. They switched out the word tobacco for cannabis. And it felt like this was something that was slipped under the rug that came in last minute. Technically that's not true. If we had done our homework, we would have known that this was coming. Um, and I think it was a failure of both you know activists and, and legislative at, you know, staff to not flag that earlier because obviously it runs contrary to many of the aims of the movement in the Moore Act, but it was also a failure of communication amongst lawmakers who weren't explicit about the fact that this was not a new inclusion. It wasn't done to, you know, purposely or maliciously to make sure that disproportionately impacted communities were not able to access those entrepreneurial opportunities. It was just a very technocratic, technical change. Um, Still, even if it it wasn't a real change, a substantive change, that can engender a lot of distrust given how honestly bad (laughs) the federal government has been on cannabis policy, how punitive it's been with cannabis related offenses. And so we need to, going into next session, going into more Act 2.0 or whatever vehicle that the legislature chooses to advance another descheduling bill, we need to be very, very concrete about our ask. We need to comb through every word of any bill that comes up for discussion to make sure that it all aligns with the broader goals of repairing the harms of the war on drugs.
0: Yeah, Natalie, it, it, I'm I'm really heartened to hear this analysis that you're giving because I think it's so important that we own our failures, that when we make a mistake, when we don't uh, really cover all of the details that we should have covered, when something like this happens, uh, we need to own it so that we can fix it, so that we can move forward. So I really appreciate that, and you know there are. Many, many people uh, who love cannabis, who have felony convictions, I'm one of them, who desperately want to be a part of the industry when it becomes legal federally. And uh, so what do you think the prospects are for, for getting this thing fixed before it passes?
3: I think we have a ton of opportunity to get it fixed. And, I, and I'm and i excited about that. I'm sad because the implication is the MORACT Act will not be... Um, voted on in this session, and it's relatively unlikely it'll be voted on at least early in the 117th Congress. Um, that has to do a lot with congressional priorities. Obviously, our lawmakers are have their hands full with COVID relief and other legislative priorities. But the hubbub around these inclusions, sort of towards the end of the Moore Act saga, Gives us an opportunity to have these candid conversations with lawmakers and make sure that we are not unfairly or unduly penalizing people who would be incredible assets to the cannabis industry and their felony conviction um, does not negate their interest, their ambition, or their ability to really become productive members of the regulated industry. So, when over the next six months or so, We will work with Capitol Hill to make sure that we are creating a better More Act, a more inclusive and a more equitable More Act. And I think this has given us an opportunity to revisit so many other provisions related to criminal justice and criminal justice reform um, to make sure we're not being caught, but you know, bogged down by semantics or we're not overlooking anything. Um, We will all be going through. Legislation, whether it's More Act 2.0 or another vehicle, with a fine-tooth comb, um, and we will fight to make sure that we are not excluding anyone um, just by virtue of their cannabis-related criminal justice involvement.
0: Great to hear that you're that you're optimistic about that. Um, you know, descheduling, removing cannabis entirely from the Controlled Substances Act is quite a step farther than the articulated position of Joe Biden, which was to decriminalize federal cannabis uh, offenses, um, possession of cannabis at the federal level, which is really not much of a change at all. If if the um, Congress, maybe it's going to be the 118th Congress, but if a Congress that happens during the Biden administration passes a descheduling bill, do you think Biden will sign it?
3: I do think Biden will sign it. I, I'm not going to pretend that um, President-elect Biden is particularly enamored by cannabis policy reform. Um, he's obviously had a, a checkered history on, on drug policy, to say the least. But what he's signaled during his campaign, and I think to be honest, over his entire career as a politician, is that he's definitely open and amenable to compromise, whether that's compromise within his own party or compromise across the, the aisle, he tends to be um, someone who takes hardline positions but is willing to have his mind changed. And if Congress, you know, going into the 117th, it looks like it's going to be a Democrat controlled house and potentially uh, a, at least a tie in the Senate, we'll see, they've already made it clear that this is a priority for them and that the party of which Biden belongs to wants cannabis policy reform. And if they have the political will to put something like the MORAC back on the table next year or the year after, it feels very unlikely that President Biden would go against his party in that way. Because it's not just a small faction of people within his party. You know, it passed with a, a huge majority of Democratic representatives. And it would be politically unstrategic to say the least, to have that sort of open conflict (laughs) on the national stage.
0: Well, that's a uh, hopeful analysis. I I think I agree with you. Um, I would put it a little differently. I would say that Joe Biden uh, has always had a knack for finding the political center. Um, An unkind observer would call him an opportunist. In this case, I think that your belief that he would sign a descheduling act is just another sign of how far our movement has progressed, that we've been able to push a guy like Joe Biden, one of the architects of mass incarceration, into a positive stance on cannabis reform. Um, It's a great day. Natalie, uh, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to your next report.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, Natalie. We appreciate your work at The Last Prisoner Project very much and look forward to your next policy update. Now, the Moore Act isn't perfect. No piece of legislation in a democracy will ever be 100% satisfactory to everybody. And every piece of legislation can be evaded and avoided by people determined to do it. But the fact that the House of Representatives of the United States has now gone officially on record and said that cannabis does not belong in the Controlled Substances Act is a tremendous breakthrough an achievement that many generations of activists have strived towards for decades. It's also the closing of a historical loop. See, cannabis was never supposed to have been in the Controlled Substances Act. When Congress passed it almost 50 years ago, cannabis was only temporarily placed in Schedule I of the Act. A blue ribbon commission headed by Governor Raymond Schaefer of Pennsylvania was impaneled to study the question and come back to Congress with a recommendation on how to schedule cannabis. To almost everybody's great surprise, the Schaefer Commission conducted a very rigorous and scientific study and presented then-President Nixon with its recommendations. The Commission said that cannabis doesn't belong in the Controlled Substances Act at all. Just take it out. It shouldn't be in any schedule whatsoever. And then they went a step further and said that the non-profit transfer of cannabis among adults should be legalized almost 50 years ago. Nixon squelched the report. He made sure it never made it back to Congress, made sure Congress never had an opportunity to even consider it. And then Nixon launched the war on drugs as a political weapon against black people, brown people, and hippies like me. In doing so, He echoed the historic example of Harry Anslinger and provided a brutal template of racially disparate enforcement that's still being followed by all too many prohibitionists we have yet to knock off their purchase of power. But rest assured, my friends, their day is done. I imagine the news of more act passage is setting the demonic ghosts of old Harry Anslinger and old Richard Nixon rolling in their graves and I know it's caused all of the angels on my shoulder, all of our beautiful heroes now gone, to dance a joyous dance of victory. I can feel them tapping away. Next, we have a report on Malawi by another new activist correspondent who has just joined the Radio Free Cannabis team, Sibusiso Zaba, reporting from Johannesburg, South Africa. Sibs, welcome to Radio Free Cannabis.
4: Now, Africa has seen a flurry of countries introducing and approving cannabis regulations over the last few years. Malawi, which passed a bill in February 2020, making it legal to cultivate and process hemp uh, for medicinal and industrial purposes, has signaled that it is now ready to start commercial production and processing of cannabis. The chairperson of Malawi's newly established cannabis regulatory authority Boniface Kazimira, said his board has received more than 100 applications for licensing, which are under review. The government has now started introducing its licensing fee for the cultivation, selling, storage, distribution of both medical cannabis and industrial hemp, which range from $100 to $10,000 a year. The Malawian economy has for decades depended on tobacco as one of its major uh, exports. However, due to declining demand and poor weather conditions, tobacco revenues have fallen sharply. This year's 2020 tobacco revenues are expected to fall by more than 25%. The government sees hemp production as making up for some of the shortfall from tobacco and eventually surpassing tobacco uh, as its major source of revenue. Public reaction towards the fees has not been well received to date which re- uh, in Malawi, which remains one of the poorest countries in the world. With agriculture employing over 80 percent of Malawians and a decline in the tobacco industry, leaving many locals looking for alternative employment, the development of the cannabis industry is likely to be a top priority for the government and locals over the next few years. Due to social pressures, there are expectations that the government may reduce the proposed licensing fee in coming weeks or months. Malawian high THC strains are already world famous uh, in cannabis with uh, Malawi Gold being a favorite amongst the global recreational cannabis community. Malawi has a unique opportunity to strategically and carefully establish a cannabis industry that can provide for thousands of citizens in a time when the country needs it the most. However, it's important that the, com- the country set up a compliant, transparent, inclusive industry if Malawi is to realize the potential of cannabis to positively impact as many of its citizens as possible. Thank you, Stephen D'Angelo and the Radio Free Cannabis team for this opportunity to correspond from Africa. The news keeps uh, coming from this part of the world, so I very much look forward to further correspondence and engagement into 2021. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sibs. This little story surfaces some very important points. One that really jumps out for me is the substitution effect of cannabis for tobacco and the way that effect is flowing through the entire tobacco supply chain. In recent years, we've seen the publication of multiple studies showing that cannabis, and in particular CBD, modulates addictive behavior. It helps people reduce their consumption of tobacco and other addictive substances. Now, the global increase in cannabis consumption isn't the only reason that demand for tobacco is dropping in Malawi, and that the farmer's income is shrinking but it's probably one of them. And again, the kind and generous cannabis plant is here to help. Just like it's helped consumers wean themselves off of tobacco, it's providing those farmers with income they need to replace what they've lost from falling tobacco demand. Another beautiful example of the ability of cannabis to restore homeostasis, to bring us back to a place of natural balance. In the Past couple of weeks, we've seen the cannabis freedom movement achieve some goals that we've struggled towards for decades. The United Nations, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the European Court of Justice, some of the most powerful deliberative bodies on the planet, all took steps to roll back cannabis prohibition. And the parade of positive cannabis research continued marching on, bringing us solid confirmation of something that most of us intuitively knew was true. When people consume more cannabis, they drink less alcohol. Just another example of how the benefits of legalization flow not just to cannabis consumers, but to society as a whole. When cannabis is made legal, people consume more of it. When people consume more cannabis, they drink less alcohol. And when they drink less alcohol, they're less likely to cause death or injury to themselves or other people. These facts and the rest of the truth about cannabis are becoming clearer and clearer to more and more people all the time. But prohibitionists still cling to power in places like Spain and France and Italy. Albert Tio is still in prison, and French cannabis consumers still face felony charges for cannabis. But the wine is out of the bottle. The toothpaste is out of the tube, and the genie is out of the lamp. Our tribe was born in the shadows, but we've seen the light. We've had a small taste of freedom, but we still need our full share. Major global institutions are turning towards us, but only because we've been relentlessly pressing them for justice. The message to our friends and our opponents alike is the same. Our mission will not be over until every person on the planet who can benefit from cannabis has safe affordable and legal access to it and the last cannabis prisoner is released and given the resources to rebuild the lives that were stolen from them we understand this mission well we understood it well before we committed to it and we will complete it no matter how many generations of our tribe it takes i know that some of you find yourselves in difficult circumstances it's not unusual in our tribe The darkness of prohibition still covers most of the world so you may find yourself having to hide your connection to cannabis or maybe you're already in trouble with your family or school or employers or religious authorities or maybe you're even facing arrest or imprisonment and i know that some members of our audience are actually in prison doing time right now this is a special shout out to all of you no matter How horrific your circumstances, no matter how far away the light may seem, remember that if you love cannabis, you are part of a worldwide tribe. We come from all nations and races and religions, and collectively, we are hundreds of millions strong. We know that we are on the winning side of history. We know that we are writing the next page in the story of the human adventure. And I promise you that we will not forget you. We will continue to raise our voices, we will continue to repress our demands, and we will continue to put ourselves between injustice and its victims until the mission is complete, until our tribe is free, until all of us have come all the way home. Thanks very much for tuning in. Remember, we're going to be taking a break over the holidays, but we'll be back in the new year with a fresh look and more news from our amazing and dedicated activist correspondents. I hope that your holidays are full of love and joy, whichever set of holidays it is that you celebrate. And if you don't celebrate any holidays at all, may you nonetheless close 2020 out in good cheer and hopeful mind, and get ready to make 2021 the year that the Cannabis Freedom Movement grows its global wings. Until then, be well. Be free and do your best to stay healthy. See you next year.